0: Or at least seemingly impossible things. In September 2019, our elders decided it was time to deal with our mortgage debt. We had a mortgage debt of 2.3 million dollars at that time and it was a burden that has been for lots of years hampering our ability to do all the things that we believe God is calling us to do. And so we started what we called the Freedom Campaign, and it is my joy on this Easter morning to be able to tell you that in the last two and a half years, we have now reduced our mortgage debt to under $1 million, and that is absolutely... That is absolutely worth celebrating, and I am so grateful. Thank you to everyone who has been a part of making this happen. Your generosity has helped us take these incredible steps. And if you haven't been a part of this campaign yet, I invite you to consider being a part of helping us knock out the rest of this $1 million. And you can do that. You can go to pctr.org slash give and you can choose freedom campaign or mortgage campaign in the drop-down menu or you can put freedom in the memo line of a check or an auto bill pay. And the reason I'm putting that out there and the reason we called it the Freedom Campaign, is we because we believe God is inviting us to be free from our debt so that we can more freely love and serve our community with the generosity and the love that God has for us. And so thank you for being a part, and I just invite you to consider being a part as we continue to move forward toward freedom. So this morning as we move to our message, I am wondering... How many moments of your life, how many moments have you had in your life that you could describe as seismic shift kind of moments? Those moments that, that make it so that everything that happened before and in the past seems to fade, all of your expectations and understandings, and opens up this new path, this new way of life before you that maybe you're not even sure how it's going to happen. The kind of of moments that perhaps began or the conversation began with something like, we're moving. Or or maybe you've experienced this one. We're no longer in need of your services. Seismic shift moment. Or maybe it was something like, I'm late. What do you mean you're late? It's 3.30 in the morning. No, I'm late. Oh, That's just a rhetorical example, not something from real life 18 years ago. <laughs> but we have all sorts of moments like these. You know, congratulations. You You got accepted to the school. Congratulations. You made the team. You got the new job. Happy retirement. It's a girl. It's a boy. Again, whatever it is. We have all of these moments where the expectations and ways of life that we once knew are shaken up and that there is this new way of life that's put before us to embrace and to discover and the reality is Easter is all about that. And what we're going to read this morning, Matthew, one of the writers of of the Gospels, captures a literal and figurative seismic shift moment on that first Easter morning. And so I'd invite you to follow along if you'd like on the screen as we read from Matthew chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord thanks be to God. Let's pray as we move into this word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious Easter morning, and in these moments as we seek to hear from you, we invite you to send your spirit to open not just our ears for hearing, but our minds for understanding, our hearts and our souls for receiving the word that you have for us, that we can move more and more into the freedom of the new life that you intend for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I think it is so hard for us to really imagine what this must have been like for these women. Let I me mean, just try for a second in your mind's eye to really put yourself in their shoes. It's dawn, so it's just barely light is breaking. The women are probably walking through incredibly quiet streets. Maybe there's just the beginning signs of life. Maybe somebody going to fetch some water, maybe some hushed conversations that they can hear through the windows as they're passing by, but they're not thinking about the conversations. They're probably not even making eye contact with anyone or even one another. They are probably just silently moving with a singular focus because they know where they're going. They're going to the garden. They're going to the tomb. And they know why they're going. They're going to mourn and to grieve Mary Magdalene and the other Mary Mary Magdalene is going to mourn the loss of the man who had freed her from demons but not only that who had received her as all of society considered her an outcast he instead welcomed her in gave her love and acceptance brought her into his inner circle his accepted loved friends she mourned her rescuer and her defender and the other Mary Kind of an understated way to talk about Jesus' mother, don't you think? The other Mary. But that's who this was. She goes to mourn what no mother should have to mourn the loss of her son. And so these two women, broken and hurting, likely moving and just carrying their shared silent pain because Jesus' death is still so fresh. It had just really happened, and they had been there to witness every part of it, the brutality and the mockery on the cross, even where they had laid his body, and he had died about three o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, and all of, everything had to be wrapped up by sunset. And so Jesus' body had been quickly whisked off of the tomb or off of the cross, rushed to this tomb to be sealed up. They didn't have any time to grieve. Didn't even have time to begin to express their sorrow and their loss, and so here they are arriving at the tomb at dawn, so that they'd have plenty of time. Nowhere else to go, nothing else to do, but to grieve. And as they arrive, Matthew tells us that there was an earthquake, a seismic shift. As a matter of fact, he calls it a violent earthquake. And just imagine it, suddenly the ground under your feet beginning to shake. Perhaps the only thing that seemed stable in their lives over the course of those last few days, the earth itself now trembling underneath them. And they had expected to arrive at the tomb sealed to mourn, but things would not be as they expected on this day because they found an angel had rolled the stone away. An angel that was bright as lightning and terrifying. And this actually wasn't Mary's, Jesus' mom's, first time encountering an angel, was it? She had heard from an angel from Gabriel as he announced the reality that she would give birth to Jesus, but it didn't seem to prepare her for this moment anymore as the angel arrives and makes that common declaration that the angels do, don't don't be afraid, (laughs) right? The guards, the soldiers, these tough guys are so terrified. Matthew says they were petrified. They were like dead men. And so they're supposed to not be afraid. The angel goes on, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Exactly. Crucified. He was dead. We were there to see it. It was awful. And now all we want to do is grieve. Yeah, but he's not here. He is risen. From the dead, just as he said. Come on, come see the place where he lay. Now, i, I got to pause and just encourage you, don't miss the startling reality of this revelation. Risen from the dead? What? no, 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 no. He's dead. People don't get undead. That's not how this works. It's do- not possible. And here's one of the dangers. I think this is one of the dangers of being so familiar with this story. It's one of the dangers of making Easter a part of your annual tradition and annual celebration. It's part of the danger of knowing the story so well is that we can lose the awe and wonder of the story. We can lose the shock and horror of the story. We can lose the violence of the earthquake. Because I believe the violence of the earthquake is meant to parallel the violent destruction of, the, of our expectations of what is and is not possible. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, I mean, if the resurrection is real, then what is possible? And what is un- impossible? I mean, if God can raise from the dead, then what can he do in your life? What can he do in our life? See, this is the moment. This is the seismic shift event where everything changes, where everything from the past fades into the past and a new way of life is opened up before us all. For these women, it was a new way of life, moving from grief and devastation and sorrow and sadness and mourning to joy beyond their comprehension. To then transforming their whole lives and giving them new purpose and meaning as they made it their purpose the rest of their days to tell anybody who would listen that Jesus is alive. I mean, if the resurrection is true, what then is possible in your life? Is it possible? Is healing possible when it seems like there's no way forward? Is forgiveness possible even though even though the things that you've done in your past or even in your present are so shameful that you haven't even told anyone in your life about them and maybe are even afraid to utter them out loud to yourself is forgiveness possible Is joy in the face of the d- deepest sorrow and grief possible Is it possible that God could soften your heart or the hearts of others in your lives where there is estrangement and broken relationships and make reconciliation happen? Is it possible that you no longer have to live overwhelmed and overcome each and every day, but you can have confidence? Is it possible? That your life has more meaning and more purpose than you could have ever imagined that there is a God worth living for and that life is more than just getting by day in and day out in the grind because God has plans and purposes for you. Is peace in a war-torn world possible? If the resurrection is true, then maybe so many of these things that we see as impossible are possible with God. Oh yeah, but that's the problem, if the resurrection is true. And I know for some, that, that's the rub. That's the problem, the if, because some I know are not sure that the resurrection is true, that it's a historical fact and reality. Yeah, sure, it's a nice story, it's a great legend, You know, it's even a really nice metaphor about how good things can come out of bad situations, but a historical reality that has implications in our daily lives here and now? Yeah, I don't know about that. And if that's where you're living, I just would invite you to consider the evidence. Matthew is writing this as one of Jesus' disciples, that he had been a tax collector And Jesus had come along and had scooped him up from the side of the road and invited him to follow him. And so Matthew followed him for the rest of Jesus' life. Oh, right up until that moment where Matthew and all the rest of the disciples deserted him. I mean, if Matthew was trying to record something that made him and and this whole story look good, do you think he would record those shameful details about he and the rest of the heroes abandoned Jesus? But he had been an eyewitness of these things. And so he wrote what he saw, what he had experienced. And other writers wrote from their own experience as well as eyewitnesses. And some, like Luke, instead interviewed all of these people, these eyewitnesses, so that there could be confidence that you could actually count on what Luke wrote down as the truth of what had happened. And Luke records in Acts 1 verse 3, he says, After Jesus' suffering he showed himself to the disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, we don't have those proofs. Wouldn't that be great? We don't have those proofs, but we have the fruit of those proofs. We have the outcomes of those proofs. Consider further the, the evidence for the resurrection. I mean, at first, Jesus was in fact dead, that some over time have tried to argue, "Oh, Jesus just kind of fainted, and it wasn't that big a deal." And you know, no. Even those nowadays, that argument has not held up to scrutiny. Even scholars who do not believe in the historical reality of the resurrection do actually agree. There's a consensus that Jesus was in fact dead. That the Romans were in fact good at killing people, and that the cross was in fact an effective means of execution, and that Jesus died there's also consensus and agreement that Jesus' body went missing. And and even the opponents of Jesus acknowledge that Jesus' body went missing. Because if it wasn't missing, they would have presented the body to make the whole thing go away, don't you think? And so instead, Matthew records that they started spreading the story that Jesus' disciples, his followers, had stolen the body so that they could continue the hoax, continue the story. Well, if it was just a hoax and a story, how does it explain explain what happened next? Because for the followers of Jesus, everything changed. They experienced this seismic shift. The women, these women went and they boldly proclaimed that Jesus was risen. They were willing to look like fools and idiots. And yet they went... And they proclaimed to the disciples of Jesus. The disciples of Jesus turned around and they started proclaiming that Jesus was in fact alive. He had in fact risen from the dead. They were so convinced that they even changed the days that they worshipped. See, all, all of these original followers of Jesus were Jewish. And so the Sabbath day was Saturday. They should have worshipped on Saturday. But over time, as, as tension arose with the temple system, they moved to Sunday. Why did they move to Sunday? Because they were convinced Jesus rose on Sunday, the first day of the week. That the risen Lord rose on Sunday. On top of that, they embraced baptism as a practice. Baptism had been reserved for only non-Jewish people who were becoming Jewish before this. Well, they were applying it to everybody, Jews and non-Jews. Everybody should be baptized because that's what Jesus had said. And you might be thinking, yeah, well, those are all religious things. That's not that big a deal. Well, how about this one? They were so convinced that they moved from the places of fear and hiding to this place of boldness, this place where they proclaimed in the face of persecution and even death itself that Jesus was risen, that he was alive. See, they, people weren't offended by Jesus' death. That was agreed on. They were offended that someone would claim that he was alive. And so when these followers of Jesus believed, convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, don't you think they were convinced I don't know about you, if, if it had been a hoax, don't you think they would have drawn the line at death? I think I probably would have drawn the line. They must have been convinced that the resurrection was true and real. And if you're not convinced, I'd encourage you to continue to explore because there's more. We just don't have time to go into it. The reason I'd encourage you to explore is because if the resurrection of Jesus is true, is historical fact and reality, it has incredible implications for us. It has far-reaching implications for your life. But I think beyond the problem of just if the resurrection is real, I think we struggle with we struggle to believe that the possible is real for us. We have this tendency and this ability to focus on what's impossible, on how it's not going to work out for us. We tell ourselves these stories that here's all the ways it's going to go wrong. Here's the reasons it's going to happen this way. And we have some difficulty believing that new and possible is available to us, maybe to other people, but not to me. And, this, and so we go back to the ways and the expectations that we already know. This is what the, the people of God did in Numbers 14 that was read earlier for you. See, God had brought them out of slavery They were freed from this brutal slavery and God was leading them through the desert to this this beautiful promised land. And they had just sent this group of spies into the land to check it out to see if it was really that great and the spies had come back and said, man, it's amazing. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, which I guess is good news as long as you're not lactose intolerant. (laughs) It's this sign, this symbol of God's abundance, his provision. This This was good land. Oh yeah, there's one problem. The people are huge. Their armies are huge and some of the people are even described as giants and so the people were terrified. Here they are. What are they going to do? They're on the doorstep of this new life at the cusp of this incredible blessing that God wants to give them. What are they going to do? All they have to do is step in. Trust God. Trust that God is going to give him what he promised. What do they do? Oh, if only we had died in Egypt. You know what we should do? We should get another leader who will take us back to Egypt because that was way better than this. Right? They, they chose what they knew, even though they knew it was terrible, it was brutal, it was slavery, and yet they chose what they knew over the possibility that God was going to do something new, that God was going to do something incredible in the face of what they saw as impossible, the God of possible was going to do something new. And yet they couldn't even handle it. I think we do the same thing all the time. We choose what we know rather than the possibility of something good. Something new. We choose to stay the victim. We choose to interpret our whole lives as, man, nothing works out for me because, because of so-and-so. It's their fault. It's, I look back and it, this thing in my life, it happened, maybe it happened for you decades ago, but it's still the defining thing in your life, and so we choose victim we choose grief and we choose fear. We choose to just wallow in what we've lost rather than what we might have. We choose apathy, particularly in our spiritual life. And by doing that, we choose to just kind of keep our head down. We, no, no, we don't want to get mixed up in things that are bigger than ourselves. Really, we just need to focus because we've got plans and we've got stuff that we want to achieve. And we've got a life that we gotta go, We got to go after. We choose to rely on our own strength, our own understanding. We choose bitterness and hostility and broken relationships rather than the possibility of reconciliation Even in hard conversations. We choose to carry everyone else's burdens, even though it makes us feel like nobody really cares about us. We choose unhealthy coping mechanisms that we know lead to even further destruction. In other words, we choose the impossible. We choose to believe impossible rather than believe in the possible. I think it's because the possible, the new, is kind of scary. I mean, we were told these these women went went away, they were afraid, yet filled with joy. Isn't that how it is? When you're stepping into something new, there's this sense of fear, and because of this uncertainty, how it's going to work out, but maybe also this kind of excitement mixed in there and some joy. man. That's what God is inviting you into. Step into what's, what maybe is scary but also filled with excitement and joy. You're invited this morning to choose to trust God, to choose faith. To trust God, not yourself. To trust that God is able, that God is the God of the possible when we face the impossible. To trust that God is the one who will protect you. God is the one who will provide for you. God is the one who will break the barriers in your life. God will solve the problem. That God will heal you. That God will soften yours and others' hearts so that there can be reconciliation. Choose to believe and trust that God will provide for the deepest longing of your heart because you continue to strive and don't seem to be able to put your hands on it. Choose to trust that you no longer have to prove that you are worthy and lovable and valuable. Choose to trust that God is your source of forgiveness, that you don't have to earn it, you don't have to earn his blessing, you don't have to somehow convince and coerce God to answer your prayers, but that put your faith in the God who in your impossible says, yes, it's possible. I brought life out of death. In fact, God himself entered into flesh in Jesus Christ to voluntarily lay his life down so that you could know that you are forgiven in him, you are loved in him, it can never be taken away from you and then he rose from the dead to say sin and shame and the old ways, the old expectations, you don't have to lean into those anymore, there's something new for you. Resurrection means new life by faith in the God of the impossible. We're the God of the possible when we face what seems impossible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this incredible and profound reality, this resurrection hope, this, this truth that you brought life out of death in the darkest of moments. And so, God, may we experience this, the shift in our lives, the shift from trusting in ourselves, trusting in what we understand the shift from trusting in the old ways that we know, even though we know they're not working, that we could trust more fully in you, that we could put our faith in the God of the universe, the God who loves us, and the God who is able to do more than we could ask or imagine. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.